Thanks to Health IQ for supporting Industry Focus. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash fool to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz and potentially save up to 41% on premiums. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Wildcard Wednesday, and I'm your host, Nick Seipel. For today's episode, we'll be diving into online dating with our guests Dan McMurtry and Alex Drame of Tyro Partners, who recently authored a paper on their thesis for the online dating market. We cover everything from how online dating is affecting how people meet, how people jump between different online dating apps, and how much runway Match Group has left for monetization. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Alex Drame and Dan McMurtry are co-founders at Tyro Partners, a New York City-based hedge fund focused on secular trends driving technology, healthcare, industrial, and consumer markets. They focus on deep dive research. They recently published a paper on their online dating market thesis that's gotten a lot of attention in the industry. Alex and Dan, so excited to have you on Industry Focus. Thanks, guys. Really excited to be here. A uh, big fan of the show. Yeah, we appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, just, just first off the bat, what got y'all interested in researching this space and you know doing this deep dive on online dating? Well, uh, we're twenty eight and twenty nine, and so uh, you know, as we kind of lay out in the paper, in that age cohort, there's uh, not a lot of options um, other than online dating. So I think in real life, it's it's just been a constant phenomenon, and we've kind of come of age in, in the period where that's become dominant. So we've seen it gone from, uh, go from a, a niche to a dominant thing. And that's been really interesting to watch. Um, and then as we looked at how it was affecting other parts of the market and other companies and how they were intersecting, we kind of realized, uh, you know, this is actually a really, really important thing, not just a, uh, uh, you know, a one-off. And it's kind of been viewed as a, as a widget and not a primary driver. And we think it is a primary driver, not a widget. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'd say from my own experience, you know, I'm, I'm 27 years old. When Tinder really first hit in college, kind of came out of nowhere. And now it's this phenomenon um, that's really continued over the past decade. Um, you make some observations in the paper about how uh, it's really affected, uh, the rise of online dating has affected gender dynamics between men and women. Can you kind of dive into that uh, observation and how that's driving interactions between people? Sure. So, it, you know, it Everything about online dating is about cohort matching. And so when you make a broad statement about everyone, it tends to be wrong. And one of the reasons why we published the paper was we saw a lot of people in the press writing opinions that, you know, made a lot of sense in a specific cohort, particularly in a New York, San Francisco, uh, you know, top tier school alumni context, but just was not accurate uh, to the broad population. Um, So what, you know, what generally happens is, you know, this is, this we think about this as creating liquidity and, and transparency in the market. Um, and usually when there is transparency, consumer behavior starts to change. And because it's dating, I think people don't like thinking about this as a rational process because it's very psychologically jarring. Um, but what we're seeing is is a few big things. Um, one, um, now that everyone has the primary driver is everyone now has access to an, a multiple orders of magnitude larger pool of potential dates. That's the first thing you need to understand. You're going from your dating pool is 
the people you know at work, people you know at the bar, things like that, church, whatever, depending where you live, to where you have access to literally millions of people and everyone within 50 miles. And that means on both gender dynamics or both genders or, or you know, whatever gender you want to be, um, you, you have access, you have the ability to be a lot more selective because there's the opportunity cost is dropping massively because when you're looking for a first date, you can choose amongst unlimited options instead of five people you know, or maybe two or three people that you think are interested in, in real life. And, um, uh, and, and that's really changing a lot of dynamics. And then once you're on a date, um, you, you go on your first few dates and you date knowing that in two minutes you can have a potential date or a date, uh, if not less than that. So um, again, opportunity costs and, and kind of sunk, sunk cost biases and things like that are changing. And so people are not staying in relationships as long because if something isn't really hooking you um, or if there's a problem, you can just bail and, and you've got another option. Um, and so that's causing a lot more turnover. Um, because that is the case, opportunity cost is down. Um, selections way up. Um, younger marriages are collapsing. People are not getting married very young because why would you at 18 to 25 when, when you've got everything in front of you and you can go on a date with whoever you want? Um, and that's been a big change over the last 60 years is people going from marrying their their you know first sweetheart to, to marrying maybe their 20th relationship or something like that. So that's also leading to a lot of um, Basically, market participants now have more information when they do decide to get married and form a long-term you know, commitment of some kind. Um, and it's and it's you know five, ten, twenty times as much information as the last generation. And that's actually we think why you're seeing divorce rates decline, which is really interesting. Um, and then adding on to that, the other dynamic is that you're you know it's on average for men and women, it's a very different dynamic. Women are getting a minimum of five times the inbounds that men are and in many cases 25 or 50 times and so that creates a, a few things there one for for women generally on the platform if they're interested in some in someone they have upwards of a 50 percent probability of matching and so they can be even more selective because for a man you have you know five or ten percent probability if that and so that incentivizes men to be less selective and swipe more, which ironically reduces the signal for women. Um, and for women, um, they can be a lot choosier because they know they're probably, you know, if they say yes on three different guys, they're probably going to get at least one. Um, and so that creates a, you know, interesting dynamic. And also the queue size gets huge. So if you think about an inbound to one of the profiles, that then queues up as potentially yes, no, or once there's a match, a message. Um, on the female side, they have so many people in queue, either on requested likes or on messages, that if when the male sends a message, if he sends it at the wrong time of day, it could be five pages back in their inbox, and they're never going to see it. And so there's dynamics like that around time of day friction um, that are, are very, very important and are kind of the largest hackable item on the, on the dating sites. Um, and, and the other thing is that the whole thing has become... Um, visualize and the Instagramification of dating. And um, so now you're seeing, you know, so you're seeing big, big changes in, in consumer spending because everyone needs to look better on camera than they did in the past. And the gating item for you to get in person and be able to maybe show off a sense of humor or whatever is you have to look good in a photo. 
Um, and so all of the set, like the first gating item is going to be photo quality, particularly on Tinder. Um, and so that's changing a lot of different um, consumer behaviors. The other thing is because the opportunity cost is so low, the stakes for early dates, if you want to be successful, are much higher. You have to have really good date ideas. You have to, you know, when I talk to guys who are trying to date, they're like, well, what do I do? Where do I take a girl? You have to really make sure that if you go on a date with somebody, they have a lot of fun. You can't just be, oh, another cocktail at a, at a nondescript bar that nobody cares about. It's just not going to work because you're offering a purely commoditized product at that point. And so it's changing a lot of different consumer behaviors. It's changing household formation. Um, and, um, and it's changing just general socialization because the other thing we saw, we talked about the paper is people are no longer making referrals, which used to be kind of the dominant way in which people would meet people is, you know, your family or friends would introduce you to somebody and set you up. And because there's an unlimited number of other options, it doesn't make sense to do that anymore because if the referral fails, then it could blow up the friend group and create, you know, really awkward situations. And I think, you know, anybody who's been to an office Christmas party has probably seen that go down. Um, and so there's, you know, and, and we can go on to that, but it gets very complicated, but it's changing pretty much everything, right? If we go through that, I mean, there's not much that is not touching. And that was why we, when we dug in, we were like, wow, this is a much bigger deal than just like, oh, it's just another app. Sure, exactly. It's fundamentals of human behavior, how relationships start and end. To, to your point, uh, when, you, when you speak about referrals, I mean, I saw that early on um, on, on Tinder. They used to show you who, who are your common friends, and you're, you're disinclined uh, to swipe on those people because of the, the social dynamics um, that could happen. You know, anecdotally, I was talking to my fiance ahead of this uh, ahead of this interview, and those same observations you made about folks being more nitpicky uh, around who they date uh, because of that that new supply um, of, of folks that they can they can just get after much more quickly makes folks much more 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 quick to you know, ditch a date that uh, maybe does one thing wrong or, or checks off that box that uh, the no-go list, I guess, or the, uh, the, the deal breakers. Um, yeah, you're, you're, you're accumulating a database of things that you know don't work for you, which is actually good because a lot of people I know, and I, and I would say maybe even, you know, my parents and other people I know, like they got married and they were never, they really, really liked each other and there was, you know, some chemistry, but they were never compatible as people. And they didn't date long enough and they didn't, they didn't do the reps and the, and the checks to really vet that out. Um, and so they, one of the other things we're seeing that's really interesting is cohabitation, couples moving in together, is up. And I think large that, a big part of that is because uh, people are not, you know, due to wealth and, and, and income, are not buying houses as early. Um, and so people are renting longer, which means you can sign a six-month, 12-month, 18-month lease to somebody and kind of try it out. Can we actually get along in person? Um, but the conversion rate from cohabitation to marriage is dropping very quickly. And that means more people are actually doing that check of like, we may love each other, but can we actually live together? Are we going to kill each other? And I think that's really important, um, in terms of, you know, I think that's a big driver of why divorce rate is dropping is the percentage of people who are getting married now who have actually attempted to have lives together prior to getting married is much, much higher. And, you know, somebody from a Catholic family, there are people that disagree with that. But I think uh, in terms of uh, the probability that you will be happy, uh, it's probably ideal. And, um, you know, as an Irish Catholic, I'm a big believer in confession. So I think that's a better way to go. But, um, you know, it's, it's just, you know, so it's changing, it's changing housing, it's changing demand for rental properties. In addition to all the consumer stuff, it's changing, you know, again, all over the board. Sure. One of the interesting charts in, in your paper really shows how online dating as a share of how new couples meet has, has rocketed up. It's almost 
straight and to the right. If you go back to the to the start of the internet, maybe a, a little little blip before the the smartphone came on board. But an interesting observation from that data, as as you've mentioned, downtrends in, in referred couples, but also you see this suspicious upswing in folks reporting meeting through coworkers. You call out in the paper, these are probably folks lying about how they meet, that they're actually meeting online. Does that suggest to you, uh, it suggests to me, um, that there's still some level of shame or disapproval around online dating? Do you still, do you still think that's present in the market today? Um, you know, it's funny, in the paper, uh, I think it was Stanford's Family Study Center that put, that, put those charts out, and we really love their stuff. Um, they actually went back to some of the people that talked, said I met in bars and they're like, all right, look, dude, did you really meet in a bar? And they're like, no, we met on, well, we met on, we were connected on Tinder, but the first time we met was in a bar, they're playing some technicality. But I think that, I don't think there's a stigma anymore in 80 or 90% of the population under, let's say 40, but there still is a stigma in going to grandma and saying we met on the telephone or something that sounds weird to older generations. So I think there's still a stigma in going to your parents and grandparents and especially, you know, I'm, I'm from Richmond, Virginia. Alex is from Ohio. We now live in New York. Very different cultures uh, between those two places. And it's going to be a little different. You know, I'm not necessarily going to go back to uh, my grandparents in Virginia and say, hey, I met this person on a website because they're going to go, what the hell are you talking about? But in New York, I, you know, I, I'd, be, I'd be very candid about that. Um, I think ironically, both Alex and I met the people we're dating through referrals which is the you know, lowest probability way of doing it now. But, um, you know, I, it's, it's uh, uh, so we don't have to tell that lie. But, uh, you know, in other circumstances, I've, I've definitely personally told that lie of, yeah, we met at the bar. And, you know, my dad's looking at me like, bull we met at the bar. But, you know. <laughs> As we see the kind of, uh, sorry, uh, a follow-up question I have there, as you see these differences in attitudes uh, among generations, even even for us, being in our, in our late 20s, kind of remember dating uh, before Tinder and, and these apps kind of existed. Are, are you seeing uh, among the, the Gen Z folks, the folks who haven't known a world where online dating didn't, didn't exist, that attitudes uh, are even diff- even more different among that group than, say, among you know our generation, the millennials? Yeah, definitely. What's interesting is now you're actually seeing... Um an increasing number of people who are 50 plus meeting online um, because as you get to a certain age, the available dating pool is much more limited because a lot of people are married or, or what have you. And, you know, I don't, it sounds like a, you know, I've never been 60 and single. Hopefully I never will be, but um, if you're 60 and single right now, how do you meet somebody? And that's been people. So now there's, you know, several specific dating platforms for people who are, you know, 50 plus. Um, there are matchmaking businesses, um, and, and so you're seeing actually attitudes change because, you know, the general opinion of maybe the 50 to 70 year old cohort may be a certain thing, but the attitude of the 50 to 70 year old cohort that's single is probably going to be different, you know? Sure. Sure. As we're talking about cohorts, you mentioned earlier the Instagramification of online dating, a lot of focus around, uh, people's appearance. Uh, when you look at Instagram itself and social media platforms, you see a, a big habit of folks having platforms across multiple social media sites, people as they age migrating from Facebook to Instagram, other platforms. As you look at usage patterns in the online dating space, how are you seeing cohorts migrate among the platforms, having profiles on multiple platforms? How, how is that playing out? Something interesting has happened in the last uh, year or two, I think, which is you've started to see you know, for a while, it seemed like all the platforms were the same. They were all swipe left, right. Um, 
basically off of how well Tinder was doing with, with mobile phone proliferation. But now you're seeing slightly different value propositions emerge. And so what we think is happening is basically Match and Bumble and the other platforms are trying to basically say, we're going to have a number of different UI functions that are the, the individual apps are just different UI configurations. And based on um, biases of the consumer coming into the market, they may have a preference for form factor A versus form factor B. And um, so Bumble has now, Bumble and um, Hinge have now decided that they're going to try to be a little bit upscale, um, a little bit more, um, I'm not sure what the word is, but they're trying to be a little higher quality of a brand, um, slow things down a bit. Both of them have functions after the match that delays the ability to, to speak. So in Bumble, the woman has to, has to message first. And also the man can, and they have 24 hour window to do that, but the man can pay to extend. And so very clever monetization strategy they've done is the women are aware that the man can extend the match. And so a lot of women will only talk to guys who extend the match because it's a double indication of interest that they're, you know, they're really serious. And that's unique on Bumble because on most of the platforms, the paying users are the worst performing users. Historically, that's been the case. And so on Bumble, they figured out a way to make the, specifically the male cohort, cohort paying a, a table stakes item. Um, Tinder has tried to use Tinder Gold and other things like that to um, incentivize people to pay and make it less about the pitch that it's going to increase your odds. They're offering more selection. They're like reducing access to the pool um, because generally the pitches of, oh, if you do this, you get unlimited swipes just means that your hit rate is very low. And you think that if you can get 50 X the access to the pool, that if your hit rate is 2%, then you might be able to get one match on 50 swipes. Um, and, uh, and then Hinge is structured very differently where it has kind of cards on pictures and question, funny questions and prompts. And the person, um, when they like the person, have to, or it's strongly suggested that you engage and comment on a specific item. And so they've gamified it a little bit and they've slowed it down. Um, slowing down the app process is smart because people don't turn the inventory as fast. Um, and so you're starting to see, you know, a bunch of different uh, um, offerings there. And then, you know, the original firm that tried to slow it down was eHarmony. And eHarmony basically would filter applicants, you had to apply, and they would filter applicants for how desperate you were. And then they would only show you like three or four, four people a month so that you'd take those very seriously. Obviously, because I know you're already predisposed to, you know, making a purchase in, in economics terms. And um, um, and then they give you a lot of information. You're trying to go back and forth. And so you know, the gamification and slowing it down is one angle. The really fast dopamine hit, you know, Tinder is largely used as a form of entertainment, not as a uh, actual dating vehicle. Um, people are spending, you know, 45 minutes a day on it and, and more in, in, in certain cases. Um, just because it's fun. It's, you know, and, and, and one of the things, you know, when we think about different businesses, one of the things we like about the dating business is, I think what we would call the dating business is a neurological inevitability. It's not something people like, it's something people are, you know, biologically hardwired to need. And that is, you know, there's very few businesses that are that are that way. And I think cigarettes are another one. And, but that's about it. You know, cigarettes, Coca-Cola, these are, these are addiction-like neurological processes. Um, and what we found with Tinder is what we found with all these platforms very interesting is if you go back kind of on an evolutionary basis over the arc of human history, if you're a male 
and a female is interested, the probability that you can convert that into a relationship or something is pretty high, um, just over the cumulative history of humanity and monkeys. Um, and so the logical dopamine feedback loop there is that when you get that indication of interest, you get a very positive feedback loop neurological response. And that is what tenders gaming because just the indication of interest is a massively positive feeling. Um, but actually going on the date and getting to know somebody and all of that, that's very stressful. And so people are basically optimizing for that dopamine hit, not for going on dates. And that is Tinder's core business. The other businesses are trying to say, when you get tired of that, you can come to this. And there's more of a actual, this is an actual dating thing. Um, but Tinder, Tinder is taking advantage of an instinctual um, kind of feedback loop. And then the other platforms now are increasingly trying to say, okay, if you like really want to meet somebody. So there's a lot of ads all over New York City subways right now for Hinge. And the, and the line on the ad is uh, designed to be deleted. And that's kind of the picture saying. So what the idea for Match is they're going to have all these platforms. And when you rage quit one and go, you know, I hate this, you're just going to sign up for another Match property. Um, and it's a brilliant strategy. Average eight hours of sleep per night? Check. Eat a quality plant-based diet? Check. Exercise four more times per week? Check. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure you live a long life. Isn't it time you be financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? If you're a runner or a cyclist, or you're into CrossFit or another type of athlete, even if you're a committed weekend warrior, if you're a vegetarian or vegan, then you deserve to be rewarded for your hard work with more affordable life insurance rates. That's where Health IQ comes in. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. Health IQ can save you up to 41% because physically active people have significantly lower risks for heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending on your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared to other providers. That's healthiq.com slash fool. Yeah, Deanna, you know, as we're talking about match and talking about the, the strategies these companies use to, to give you that dopamine hit and keep you on the platform, let, let's kind of talk about match, talk about monetization. As you look at, um, you know, tenders, it encourages you to keep swiping, spend a lot of time on the app. Those other ones are, are much slower paced. How does that affect kind of the monetization uh, runway of these apps? Uh, yeah, any thoughts there? Alex, you want to take that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we think there's there's huge runway for monetization for, for you know, match in particular. Uh, I mean, right now they're monetizing, I think, at like a 60 cent per day ARPU right now. Uh, that's been growing you know, pretty steadily for the last couple of years. But with, um, you know, Tinder Gold and Tinder Plus and, and all the different sort of like add-on purchases that you can do like inside the apps, you know, there's, there's, there's room to expand that feature. So we think that's going to continue to grow. But we also see things that kind of um, you know, extend the reach of these apps, you know, kind of just beyond your smartphone. So, uh, for example, last, uh, I think it was last October, um, Hinge announced a partnership with OpenTable where like through the, the Hinge app, when you, you know, have a date, you can go into you know, the, the OpenTable section of the app and find a place to, to go. You know, so we think there's, there's opportunities for sort of extensions like that where you can you know, partner with you know, restaurants, bars, whatever, uh, to actually get people to like pick, you know, pick that specific spot for the day. There's, you know, and, I, and I think at a high level, um, what's interesting about when you think about what is the monetization capacity of these businesses, 
there's advertising and partnerships and then there's premium subscriptions. Those are the kind of the visible uh, vectors. But I think I think the way to think about it is the the tangential markets to dating and the products and services being sold are generally absurdly high margin products. We're talking about cosmetics. We're talking about liquor. Um, we're talking about tickets, things like that. And so they now have a marketplace which controls kind of the prime consumer in the 18 to 35 year old category that structurally has to spend money on that stuff to survive in the evolutionary process and they control it. And so the question is over time, can they monetize by taking cuts in those adjacent verticals because people are already buying or going to be buying those products so that they can compete on the apps before they would buy those products so that they could compete at the bar at the club at the event they'd look good feel good they'd have ways to you know attract a, a, um, a date but now it's all one place and so they have they have a real and i think the, the, the bull case for match is kind of a lot a much better version in my opinion of the bull case for grubhub where they actually control all of the demand um, and so the question is, why would they not be able to monetize at a very high rate with cosmetics advertisements? Why would they not be able to monetize at a very high rate with ticket sales? Why would they not be able to monetize at a very high rate with restaurants, actually? And restaurants are a terrible business. But the point about restaurants is a customer who comes in and buys three to six drinks is an infinity margin compared to a customer that buys a meal. You're selling them, you know, vodka sodas and beers that are, are massively high margin products. And so a restaurant can actually afford to pay a deceptively high amount if if it can be validated with data that the customers being placed there are there to drink. Um, yeah, it's, it's just a question of, you know, can these apps actually drive drive volume? Right. And if that's the case, then, then we believe there's there's significant monetization in actual. And the beautiful thing about Match is they have so many platforms. And, and this is really any tech, tech business, but what's really cool about Match is they can do really interesting testing of any of these ideas of how we might do is they don't have to change the whole platform. They can go in and they can tweak and they can pilot something just in New York. They can pilot it in just in New York under 35. They can, they can do cohort testing and very controlled testing where they're not risking the platform anyway. They're not going to change the overall platform uh, in a way that can in, impair it. But they can go in and test these things, get the verification data they need, and then go out to the monetization channel and say, look, we proved this works. Um, and, and they can make the best pitch ever. I'm going to make you $5 and take $1. And that's, that's, you know, that is such a better pitch than you know, most uh, ad sales. That's what every ad sale is trying to be, but this has actually got a very good case for it. Right, they can, um, so they that's where the vector of where we see the monetization. Sure, I guess they, they can they can truly link that demand, that aggregate that demand, and really link it to uh, to where these people end up going on dates, and, and, and you know capture some some share of that value. Obviously, Tinder, when you look at Match Group, is dominating the story. It's been driving a lot of the growth in revenue. Uh, when you look outside of Tinder at those those sub platforms, they have OkCupid okay is one. Um, which one of those are you most excited about the prospects for? Definitely Hinge. Um, I think that you know you've got a few things. Tinder does well because it's a very gamified thing. It's very low psychological commitment. You go on, it's, it's kind of a meme, it's funny. And so in new markets, particularly when they went into Europe and Asia and other places, it's very easy to get people to go on because it's kind of this fun, funny thing. And um, 
people are going on. A lot of people go into these go into Tinder specifically in a very unserious way. Um, but once online dating as a cultural phenomenon gets normalized in a market, then you start to see stratification of interests in terms of people actually wanting to date, people wanting to swipe, people wanting this, that, or whatever. And so Bumble, I think, is an interesting position where they're kind of straddling a few cohorts there. And that's, I think, very clever. And they've done it. They've really outperformed what I thought they would do because I felt initially that they had put frictions in their UI that made it really unpleasant to use. And and, um, um, and I think for a lot of people, it's their least favorite app. I think for a lot of women, it's their favorite. And that's kind of an interesting thing. But they've just crushed it. Um, but Hinge is the one within the match universe that I'm the most excited about because I think they've got, I think that if you rebuild online dating today um, in, a, in a world that, where it is normalized, I think you'd build Hinge. And Hinge is where they're doing the most product testing. Hinge is where they're doing the open table testing. Hinge is, I think, kind of like the, the souped up, complicated, you know, custom hot rod they've got. Tinder is a very simple product. Um, Hinge has, you know, a lot more inputs, a lot more data. They can see what type of things people care about. They can see how people try to approach other people. They can see, you know, hit rates across different entry different entry vectors. Um, and so that's just the most fascinating one to me by by a lot. Sure, you call it in your paper, kind of take a shot at a, at Facebook's dating profile uh, when you when you look at. The, you know the the fall and referral uh, of friends among uh, you know the share and how people meet. Uh, when you look at Facebook's yeah. dating uh, offering, do you view that as, as not a significant threat to match? And if so, why? Yeah, and, and I would note they called me and and kind of wanted to check me on that, which uh, <laughs> I appreciated. We talked through it, and their case is kind of like they don't need to make any money on dating. Because if, if this adds a network effect to Facebook, it's they can monetize across the whole platform. And so they don't need to do some of the gamification that leads to user dissatisfaction because they don't need to ever make money on it. Um, and that's an interesting case. And I think, you know, but I think for younger people, they don't, I think people do not trust Facebook, um, younger people. And I don't think younger people want their dating to be done through Facebook. But... I do think people who are call it 35 plus and particularly people who are 40 plus are extremely willing to date through Facebook. And so I think they probably have the best positioning right now in how you capture that older segment. So when I talk to people who've used Facebook dating, I think the average age has been like 45 or 50. Um, and so I think they, you know, Tinder, Bumble and Hinge are dominating 35 and under. And I think Facebook has a really interesting niche in, you know, 40 plus. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a decently sized market. It's not nearly as big as, you know, kind of the youth market, but, um, you know, they could have, you know, a little something there and, and, um, you know, I don't, I don't think it's going to necessarily fail. Um, but I don't think it's going to compete in a serious way with the other platforms. Yeah. And if you look at the, uh, if you look at the growth metrics under the hood at match, like, the, the launch of Facebook dating really didn't have any impact on those growth trends. Yeah. Uh, and there's just such a strong network effect and social normalization. And, um, you know, and, and they've, and they've made it Facebook dating instead of Instagram dating, which is interesting. I do think if they, if they went through the Instagram vector and they made an Instagram specific dating product, that would be something we'd, we'd 
have to think about a lot more because that's really got an iron grip on the younger population. But I don't think Instagram thrives because of simplicity. I don't think they want to mess with, you know, their their uh, um, uh, you know their cash cow there. Uh, you know, I think tinkering with Instagram is a mistake, and I think they know that. But if they did decide to launch Instagram dating, that would be a lot more threatening. I think. Okay, and then, you know, but outside of Facebook and Match, is there any? independently or not companies that aren't public today that, that you followed and are really excited about, you know, paying attention to going forward in this space? Um, you know, there are some matchmaking businesses that I think for like, uh, you know, they're never going to have that type of scale, but um, I think they're great businesses. I think particularly in the older cohort, um, the 50 plus cohort is willing to, there's a market for 50 plus people with of, of kind of some wealth that are willing to pay ten, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars for, you know, a matchmaking service that is able to find them a partner because they're lonely and, you know, they already spend a lot of money on a lot of other stuff, but they can't find a good life partner, and they want that, and so they're willing to pay way more than I thought they would, and it makes sense incentivize when you look at it. But so I think those are great. Um, you know, Brent B. Short at Venture Capital owns one that I think is interesting, and there's some other other smaller ones, but. Those businesses rely on local networks and are kind of day-to-day human touch businesses. Um, there's also some interesting ones. There's one based around Cornell. Uh, I'm forgetting the name that really pioneered the whole. You know, we're going to place dates at um, at restaurants and bars and things. So basically, what they would do is they would get a they would have a deal um, for drinks or food or whatever. That the only way you could cash in on is if you went on a date through the app. And I have been kind of curious, and I think it's going to take some time before this works, but I have been generally curious why these apps, you know, why does the relationship with the app end at the point in time where, um, you know, you meet somebody? Why are they not serving up recommendations for dates and activities and things like that? Because, again, as I said, you really have to compete on the quality of your dates. And so I think that's an arms race, and, uh, and I think that's something that can be monetized on. But it hasn't been done yet. That's really interesting. Um, I think, you know, you have things like Minder, which is Muslim Tinder, and they really didn't think that hard of the name. Um, but that's interesting. Um, and then you've got, you know, increasingly niche. Um, I think as an investor on the private side, you can probably make a lot of money if you're able to target um, like a very specific niche. And so there's niches that are kind of taboo that people don't, don't want to talk about in public that are actually massive businesses. Um, and so I think there's some of those that kind of remind me of like MindGeek, which is the company that rolled up all the pornography websites and has done, uh, you know, they've made an enormous amount of money. Um, and so there's some things if you want to get in a little bit weirder cohorts that, that would do well. There's also, you know, uh, ethnically centered apps, you know, JSwipe, Minder, et cetera, that, that'll do well. Um, and, then, um, and then you have the Chinese players. You've got Tantan, which is under... Um, Momo, uh, which is on the NASDAQ. Um, and that still remains fairly small. Um, and it's not yet a driver. And they've got a transaction happening right now. And I think that's worth watching. Um, I'm not sure yet that it's investable, but it's definitely something that we find interesting. Um, and they're kind of the, you know, the Chinese mega. But the issue they have is in other Asian countries um, outside of China, you know, we spent some time in Asia this year. Um, they have the lowest social prestige. And number one social prestige in other countries in Asia is Bumble. A distant second is Tinder. And a 
even more distant third is Tantan. And so Tantan is considered like kind of a trashy, sketchy app in many countries. Um, and there's still, a, you know, there's some association with prostitution and things like that. And that's going to hurt them. And they, so they've got to figure out, and they may have to launch a hinge type product to try to upscale um, the offering. Yeah, Dan, this brings up a question that you know I, I I've I had and we haven't really addressed yet. You mentioned Minder, uh, the, the the Chinese players. Is that you know you saw with with social media, uh, particularly in China, there was a you know a separate uh, social media platform that really dominated those countries versus versus the platforms that dominated uh, in the U.S. and Europe. As you look uh, to um, to these online dating apps, uh, do you see there being a you know a, a few global dominant platforms or do you see these regional uh, players emerging? Um, one of the big one of the big if not the biggest advantage the United States has um, and a fellow fund manager Nafal Sanala who's on Twitter talks about this all the time is American culture is globally extremely powerful. Um, I was in Bangladesh this year and people are watching Netflix, they're watching YouTube, they're on Facebook. Um, our TV shows are globally dominant. Our films are globally dominant. And that has a bleed effect, I think, in here where, um, you know, and it, it's, it's kind of, you also see it with luxury products. Like Hermes is Hermes everywhere. It's not just Hermes in, you know, France or somewhere. Um, <clears throat> and that, I think, is really what's happening here where a local brand will almost always have a lower prestige rank and safety rank and just general perception than these major platforms. And it's an immensely powerful thing in emerging markets where people are still getting comfortable with these platforms um, because they trust the Western brand platforms where there's already you know millions and millions of users. Um, I think it's gonna be very hard, barring government intervention and antitrust things like that, for anyone to hit massive scale outside of Matching Bumble. I hope you enjoyed that conversation on the online dating market. Tune in on Saturday to hear the rest of our conversation with Dan, where we dive into investing in Bangladesh and how to get the most value out of Twitter. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Dan McMurtry and Alex Drame, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!